more people would know him and follow him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Christmas is one week away, and I know for, for kids, you're like, Christmas is one week away, can you believe it? And for adults, you're like, Christmas is one week away, that's it? I don't know when, there's a, I don't know when this happens, but there's a transition in life. Can't, I can't nail down the age or the time, but there's a transition where it feels like it takes forever for Christmas to get here, and then it feels like Christmas was just here. I, I don't know when that switches. You guys know the different experiences I'm talking about. Some of you in this room are like, I've been waiting five years for Christmas to get here. And then others of you are like, we just, we just got together for Christmas, like a month ago it feels like. But either way, there's this anticipation. There's this anticipation building for, for Christmas. And over the past three weeks, we have been anticipating the end of the story of Ruth to see how all of this was going to come together. And as I've said week after week, Ruth is the story behind the story of Christmas. And if this story doesn't happen... Christmas doesn't happen. If this story doesn't go a certain way, we don't sing about a thrill of hope. We don't sing about our newborn king. We don't sing about our savior. And we're going to see how all of that comes together at the very end of Ruth today. So we're going to jump right in. Let's go to Ruth chapter 4. If you're not on the, all the, already there in your Bible, turn there with me. Ruth chapter 4. Ruth is in the Old Testament. Joshua judges then the book of Ruth. And if you want to grab that blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 224. 224. It's okay if you haven't been here the previous three Sundays. I'm going to just do a quick flyover and catch us up to where we've covered in the story. The first three chapters were a lot of hopelessness mixed with some small hints of hope. A lot of hopelessness mixed with some small hints of hope. The story starts hopeless because it takes place... In the day when the judges ruled, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that. And we've seen that the day when the judges ruled is described as, in the book of Judges, the day when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not a bright, hopeful time to live. But not only is it the day when the judges ruled, but there's also a famine in the land. So there's no king, there's no one worshiping the Lord as they should, and there's no food. This is a really hopeless combination. So we zoom in on a family uh, with the wife named Naomi and a husband named Elimelech. And because there's no food, they leave Bethlehem in Israel and they go to Moab. This is also a hopeless thing. Moab was not a place where they were going to be encouraged to worship the Lord. It was a place that did not worship Yahweh, but they went there to survive. So they move away from God's people and away from the Lord to Moab so the story looks hopeless. While Naomi's in Moab, they're there for 10 years, her husband dies and her two sons die. So she's just left with herself and her two daughters-in-law. This story feels hopeless. They hear about food being in Bethlehem, so they go back to Bethlehem. So it just ends up being Naomi and her one daughter-in-law, Ruth, the namesake of the book. And as they're there, as they're going back into Bethlehem, entering the city, the women of the city say, is, is this Naomi? Last time they saw her 10 years ago, her, she looked very different, her family looked very different. And they say, is this Naomi? And she tells them, don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant or sweet. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. 
So the story looks hopeless, it feels hopeless, it even sounds hopeless. And at the end of chapter 1, we saw this little hint of hope where it said, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And I, I, I know barley doesn't really feel that hopeful. Like if you were going through this really difficult time and I said, hey, I know everything's been hard, brought you some barley. You, you know that you wouldn't really feel hopeful. But this was a big deal then because for it to be the beginning of the barley harvest was going to make some connections for them. What happens next in chapter 2 is Ruth goes to gather food for her and Naomi. And she happens to end up in a field belonging to a man named Boaz. And they happen to cross paths while she's in that field. And she later finds out from Naomi that Boaz is a relative of theirs. Boaz is a man that can help them as this relative. He's a man that can redeem them, that can rescue their family and their land out of poverty and difficulty. So there's another hint of hope that maybe we have a solution to the problem here. This hope seems to be building. Then last week in chapter 3, Naomi sends Ruth in the middle of the night to go to Boaz. And she tells Ruth to go ask Boaz to be their redeemer, be their rescuer. And Ruth goes and she essentially asks Boaz to marry her, to, to rescue her and her family, Naomi and her family's name. And Boaz says, we saw this last week, I want to do this for you, but... There's a closer relative than me that should be in this role. And that's when we felt, we all felt this together, just this, no, there can't be a closer relative. Like we've been set up this whole time to want it to be Boaz. And now Boaz says, I would do it, but there's somebody closer. And then chapter 3 ended this way. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 18. This is what Naomi says to Ruth. So she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man, that's Boaz, he will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. So as we move into chapter 4, we're at the very next day. We're going to see how is Boaz going to fix this? Who is going to be the redeemer? How is this story all going to wrap up? So let's pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Let's just kind of picture this scene. Boaz goes to the city gate of Bethlehem. This is not just some, just a plain gate. The city gate was this kind of plaza courtyard area where business took place, where legal matters were settled. And Boaz goes up to the city gate and sits there and waits. He's going to settle the matter. Naomi assured Ruth of this, and he's on a mission to do it. Who is going to be Naomi and Ruth's redeemer? Back in verse 1, the middle of it. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. That word behold, I know it's not a common word for us. We saw it back in chapter 2 and talked about this. It's not really a word we use a lot. We don't say behold. It's probably good. It would be a little weird if we just said behold all the time. That would sound kind of strange. But, but the author is using that word to say, look who it is. Look who happens to show up. At the city gate, the exact same time, Boaz goes to sit there and wait for the man to show up. That same word came back in chapter 2 when Ruth was in Boaz's field and the narrator said, verse 4, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. This is the author's way of saying in chapter 2 and now, look at God's plans causing the right things to happen at the right time. 
He's the one in control. He's the one steering all of this. He's the one making these things happen. It reminds us that the most steady, constant factor in this story is the unchanging, unwavering plans of God. God's name isn't mentioned in in every little active way. We'll see one here in a minute. But he is the one steering things and guiding things. So at just the right moment, that other relative shows up. Some of y'all described me, described him to me last week after the service. We were talking, and you said you envisioned the other other relative looking like Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation. I, I don't know if that's biblically accurate, but if you want to view him that way, that's fine. That's fine. I don't think he's a bad guy. We'll, we'll learn about him a little bit. But the two redeemers meet here. This is the moment of tension. This is, this is where it's happening. And here's what Boaz says, the very end of verse 1. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now that word friend, turn aside friend, names are really important in the book of Ruth. So for a character to be nameless stands out. Boaz would have known this man's name. But what's interesting is that the same Hebrew word that's translated friend here in other places in the Old Testament, it's translated such and such. Like they went to such and such a place. Or they, went, they were there for such and such a time. What the narrator is doing here, the reason I point that out, is the author saying, Boaz said, turn aside, Mr. Such and Such. Turn aside, what's his name? Boaz knew his name, but the narrator is, is retelling the story in a way that shows us this guy's not going to be important in the story. He's not going to matter. He's not going to be a big deal. So what Boaz does next, he has... The other relative there, he gathers 10 elders from the city as witnesses to the business that's about to take place. And they're all sitting there. Boaz, the other redeemer, the 10 elders, all at the city gate, and this is the moment. Who is going to be the redeemer? Naomi and Ruth's future hangs on this. And Christmas hangs on this. Boaz lays out the situation. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. There's the proposal, very end of verse 4, and he said, I will redeem it. That's not what we wanted. We didn't want him to say that. I will redeem it. I mean, it's good there's a redeemer, but it's not good that it's not Boaz. That's what we wanted this whole time. We've been set up the entire time to want it to be Boaz. So is this story not going to have the ending that we want it to have? It seems like it's over and done, but Boaz is not done. He is strategically laying out different pieces of information as the deal goes on. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, it's almost as if he says it like, well, you know, if you decide you're going to redeem it, here's what else that means. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot 
redeem us. Now, I don't think this scene is included in the story so that you and I will criticize the other redeemer who decides not to take on the troubles of Ruth and Naomi. I think it's here to show us how costly this decision was. It was not a light, easy decision. If we didn't see this conversation, we may just assume Boaz just made a really easy decision. Oh, sure, I'll take care of it, no problem. No, this was costly. This was weighty. This was a big deal. All of this that we're seeing here helps us see that the solution to their problems depended on a costly act of redemption. So after Boaz and Mr. Such and Such come to an agreement, Boaz says he's the redeemer. He he announces it to everyone that's there. Here's what he says in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. He's making sure it's public. Everyone knows. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So it all belongs to Boaz now. This costly redemption is also a complete redemption. It's all his. Now, I know the phrase he says in verse 10, I have bought Ruth the Moabite to be my wife. Don't hear that as if Boaz views Ruth as his property. Hear it more as Boaz is now taking on the responsibility to protect and provide for and care for Ruth and her family. But the focus for us comes at the end of this first scene as the witnesses of Boaz respond to what's happened. Pay attention to what they say because they celebrate with Boaz and they pray a prayer over them. But it's going to be like three parts to it. You'll see a prayer for Ruth, a prayer for Boaz, and a prayer for their family. And pay attention to what they're praying and who else is mentioned in their prayer. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses, and here comes their prayer. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. When they pray for Ruth, they pray that Ruth would become like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah and Jacob were the parents of the 12 sons who turned into the 12 tribes of Israel. They essentially established the people of God. So when they pray this, they're praying, may the people of God grow through Ruth. May the kingdom of God grow through Ruth. And it's crazy because Ruth is not from Israel. Ruth is from Moab. So they're praying, may God do this through what they would consider an outsider. Then they pray for Boaz. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May the Lord make your name great through what the Lord is going to do through your family. Is what what they're praying for him. And then lastly, we'll slow down on this one. Verse 12. And may your house... Be like the house of Perez, 
whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You may not be familiar with that story. It happens back in the book of Genesis. But the story of Judah and Tamar is messy and scandalous. It is not a nice, clean story. And neither is the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, for that matter. Neither story are are perfect stories. But they're all examples of how God can work through disaster. God can work through pain. God can work through scandal. God can work through our failures to bring about his plans and purposes. The work God was doing in the names that they mentioned in their prayer led directly to the work God was doing among Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. If, if what happened between Rachel and Leah and Jacob didn't happen, then what happens between Ruth and Naomi and Boaz would not happen. If what happened between Judah and Tamar did not happen, then what's happening between Naomi and Ruth and Boaz would not happen. The lesson for us here is that you and I cannot limit the purposes of God as if he were only doing one thing at a time through one person in one place. When you, when you and I are confused by the circumstances of our lives, like why is this happening? What is God doing? Why am I going through this? We often look for the answer in our lives. I'm confused by what's happening in my life, so let me look to my life to find an explanation. That won't usually work. You and I are not the key to understanding the plans of the God of the universe. God controls, he certainly controls and cares about the details of each person's life in this room. But his plans, which include me, don't center on me. And his plans, which include you, don't center on you. What he is doing in my life, what he is doing in your life is not isolated from everything else that he's doing. God's purposes are not so much a straight line, they're more zigzag. It's not so much a linear timeline, it's more of a web and layers. He's doing something, he's working, and he's doing that here. And the big picture of all this, names like Rachel and Leah, Judah and Tamar, Perez, all these names are being mentioned in a way that's meant to cause our, mad, our imagination to blow wide open. To think, what could God be doing between Ruth and Boaz and Naomi right now? How is he going to work out the big picture of his purposes in this small family that lives in the middle of nowhere that nobody else really knew about? There's an expectation here. There's an expectation that the Lord is about to act, that he is up to something. And that starts to come into focus in this final scene. We're breezing through verses 1 through 12 so we could spend unhurried time in verses 13 through 22. This is where it all comes to the end. In verse 13, we start to see the beginning of the end and we see what the Lord is working to bring about all along. Let's look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. She bore a son. This is the result we've been waiting for since chapter 1. This is what we've been wanting the Lord to do. And it says the Lord gave her conception. This is only the second time in the book 
when God is described as actively doing something in the story. Back in chapter 1, it says, Naomi heard that the Lord had provided food for his people in Bethlehem. So they go back. And here, the Lord gave her conception. The Lord, the God of steadfast love who keeps his promises, he comes to rescue his people, not by giving food this time, but by bringing about the birth of a son. And it's not going to be the last time he does that. In verse 14, the women are going to celebrate with Naomi. Naomi and Ruth have a future now. They have hope. There's a promise for them. And the women of the town celebrate. Look what they say in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. You may or may not remember this from chapter 1, but I mentioned that the women and what they say to Naomi would bookend this story. You remember back in chapter 1 when Naomi and Ruth came back into Bethlehem, the women of the town said what? They said, is this Naomi? Is this really her? Is this, we've been expecting her to come back, but is that actually her? But what they say here is that of a completely different tone, a completely different message, because they're celebrating. They're celebrating what the Lord has done. They don't recognize her and her grief and her sorrow and her emptiness, but now they see her in the work of the Lord that has changed her life, that has brought things full circle for her. And when Naomi came back into Bethlehem back then, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She said, the Lord took, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. She wasn't wrong when she said that. She was empty. But the Lord brought her back empty so that he could fill her and do so for generations. They, they say to her in verse 15, this is the women speaking again, the women of the town. He, this, this redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So there's a little bit of a twist there at the end. The redeemer they've been celebrating and talking about this whole time was not Boaz. It says, your daughter-in-law who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. To the Redeemer, the Redeemer is the son. It's the baby that's been born. And then you have this kind of play-by-play, slow-motion scene that tells us every little thing that is happening to help us feel the gravity of the moment. Look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. The birth of this son, and what Boaz has done as well, saves Naomi from her hopelessness. It restores her, refreshes her, gives life to her grieving heart. But there's another level of things happening that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz could not have been aware of. At the time. But as people way outside of this, the Lord has graciously given us us this perspective to see. Because it goes on to say, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. That's a big deal. He was the father, Obed, Boaz and Ruth's boy, was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Naomi's grandson would go on to be David's grandfather. This is is a big deal. This is huge. And it's emphasized again at the very end, verses 18 through 22. I know it's a genealogy with a lot of names, some of which are difficult to say, and sometimes genealogies we just kind of breeze over. Boring, not reading it. But this is the most important part of the book. It's the most important deal. It connects us all the way in the past, what's going on with Ruth and Boaz, and then shoots us into the future. Look at verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. That connects us back to Judah and Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So once again, it's repeating, Obed would go on to become the grandfather of King David, who was the most famous king Israel ever had, the greatest king Israel ever had. So with this, we suddenly realize that in the background of these four chapters, something was happening that we didn't see. God was doing something we weren't always aware of. The final sentence of the book makes the whole four chapters look different. It changes the whole deal. All these hints of hope that we've seen have led us to this thrill of hope that we're starting to see right here. Back in chapter 1, the Lord provided food. There was a hint of hope. And then later, Ruth stayed with Naomi. Instead of leaving, there was a hint of hope. They returned at the time of harvest. That was a hint of hope. They happened to end up in Boaz's field, and he showed the kindness of God to them and became their redeemer that was a hint of hope. And all of that was anticipating a greater hope that God was going to bring about this great reversal that he was working to bring about the entire time. The book of Ruth began with the death of two sons, and it ends with the birth of a son. The book takes us from death to life, from devastation to joy, from grief to hope. And even more, the very eyes of the child that looked up at Naomi from her lap as his grandma would one day look down at his grandson named David, who would become Israel's greatest king. The book that begins in the days of the judges ends with David. Why is that significant? Because in the days of the judges, there was no what in Israel? King. In the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel, but in the days when there was no king, God was working to bring about a king. The dark times of the judges could not destroy the hope of the people of God. The people's own sin and rebellion could not destroy the promises of God. Even though his work was quiet, even though his work was often invisible, and that's often how the Lord works, not in big splashes. He was always faithfully working out his plan for the good of his people. It is impossible for our God to mislead us. 
the people of God always have a future. No matter what our current circumstances feel like or seem to say or sound like, the people of God always have a future. Because no set of circumstances can thwart the plans of God. No situation can cancel the promises of God. And this thrill of hope only gets louder and louder as we see the New Testament grab this same genealogy that Ruth ends with and launches it even further forward. Turn one place with me. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1 together. Matthew chapter 1, very first book in the New Testament. What's going to happen in Matthew chapter 1 is we're going to see not only was Naomi not the end of the story, not only were Ruth and Boaz not the end of the story, not only was their son Obed not the end of the story, King David wasn't even the end of the story. And that becomes crystal clear in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab. This is the exact same, exact same names we saw at the end of Ruth. And Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. We haven't even touched this yet, but Boaz's mom was Rahab. If you don't know that story, back, further back in the Old Testament, back in the book of Joshua, that would be a beautiful story to spend your afternoon reading and thinking about who Boaz's mom was and why maybe he loved Ruth and showed her such kindness. Let's keep going. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. We saw that at the end of Ruth. But skip all the way down with me. Here's where the genealogy is going. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. The story of the son born to Ruth and Boaz in Bethlehem was not the main story. Their story is meant to point us to the main story of another son that would be born in Bethlehem centuries later that no one could have predicted at the time. And you hear it, you'll see this on the screen. You don't have to turn there with me, but let me read read it for you. From Luke chapter 1, you hear the connection of this son, this boy that's going to be born in Bethlehem Luke chapter 1, this is verse 26, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. And here's what he says to her. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And listen to the words of the angel here. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Obed, father, Jesse, Jesse, father, David. Now David, the throne of David comes to Christ. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. We've gone from Ruth all the way to Matthew and Luke, and we've seen no king to a king named David who lived and reigned and did well but died to the king of kings who will reign forever and will never lose his throne and will never not rule. The coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, is the goal of the book of Ruth. We've seen the purposes of God at work in this book. But the ultimate purpose of the book is the same purpose of the whole Bible, to lead you and I to Christ. He's the redeemer who reigns. He's the king who saves. He was born in Bethlehem, Naomi's city. And he was born to rescue the world. Ruth's story shows us there is a God who provides for his people through his promises. And more than that, the story of Christmas shows us that. That God has promised to save. He has saved. Saved and he will save. We're not given some kind of like flat truth at the end of this story. We're given an invitation. We're given an invitation to come to Jesus and to trust him. To trust him to save you, to rescue you, to redeem you. To trust him to be faithful. To trust that his work in your life is always good. To trust that when all seems hopeless, There's always hope because the same Lord that wrote the story of Ruth is the same Lord who wrote the story of Christmas and is the same Lord that's writing the story of your life. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Come, let us adore him forever. Let's pray together and we'll transition to the Lord's Supper.